Book Two, Chapter Eighteen of Off on a Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Holly Sheard. Off on a Comet by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Book Two, Chapter Eighteen. Suspense. When the balloon had reached an elevation of about 2,500 yards, Lieutenant Procope determined to maintain it at that level. A wirework stove, suspended below the casing and filled with lighted hay, served to keep the air in the interior at a proper temperature. Beneath their feet was extended the basin of the Galian Sea. An inconsiderable speck to the north marked the site of Gorby Island. Ceuta and Gibraltar, which might have been expected in the west, had utterly disappeared. On the south rose the volcano, the extremity of the promontory that jutted out from the continent that formed the framework of the sea, whilst in every direction the strange soil, with its commixture of tellurium and gold, gleamed under the sun's rays with a perpetual iridescence. Apparently rising with them in their ascent, the horizon was well defined. The sky above them was perfectly clear, but away in the northwest, in opposition to the sun, floated a new sphere, so small that it could not be an asteroid, but like a dim meteor. It was the fragment that the internal convulsion had rent from the surface of the comet, and which was now many thousands of leagues away, pursuing the new orbit into which it had been projected. During the hours of daylight it was far from distinct, but after nightfall it would assume a definite luster. The object, however, of supreme interest was the great expanse of the terrestrial disk, which was rapidly drawing down obliquely towards them. It totally eclipsed an enormous portion of the firmament above, and approaching with an ever-increasing velocity, was now within half its average distance from the moon. So close was it, that the two poles could not be embraced in one focus. Irregular patches of greater or less brilliancy alternated on its surface, the brighter betokening the continents, the more sombre indicating the oceans that absorbed the solar rays. Above, there were broad white bands, darkened on the side averted from the sun, exhibiting a slow but unintermittent movement. These were the vapours that pervaded the terrestrial atmosphere. But as the aeronauts were being hurried on at a speed of 70 miles a second, this vague aspect of the earth soon developed itself into definite outlines. Mountains and plains were no longer confused. The distinction between sea and shore was more plainly identified, and instead of being, as it were, depicted on a map, the surface of the earth appeared as though modelled in relief. 27 minutes past two, and Galia is only 72,000 miles from the terrestrial sphere. Quicker and quicker is the velocity. Ten minutes later, and they are only 36,000 miles apart. The whole configuration of the Earth is clear. Europe! Russia! France! shout Procope, the Count, and Servadac, almost in a breath. And they are not mistaken. The Eastern Hemisphere lies before them in the full blaze of light, and there is no possibility of error in distinguishing continent from continent. The surprise only kindled their emotion to yet keener intensity, 
and it would be hard to describe the excitement with which they gazed at the panorama that was before them. The crisis of peril was close at hand, but imagination overleaped all consideration of danger, and everything was absorbed in the one idea that they were again within reach of that circle of humanity from which they had supposed themselves severed forever. And, truly, if they could have paused to study it, that panorama of the states of Europe, which was outstretched before their eyes, was conspicuous for the fantastic resemblances with which nature on the one hand and international relations on the other have associated them. There was England, marching like some stately dame towards the east, trailing her ample skirts and coroneted with a cluster of her little islets. Sweden and Norway, with their bristling spine of mountains, seemed like a splendid lion eager to spring down from the bosom of the ice-bound north. Russia, a gigantic polar bear, stood with its head towards Asia, its left paw resting upon Turkey, its right upon Mount Caucasus. Austria resembled a huge cat, curled up and sleeping a watchful sleep. Spain, with Portugal as a pennant, like an unfurled banner, floated from the extremity of the continent. Turkey, like an insolent cock, appeared to clutch the shores of Asia with the one claw and the land of Greece with the other. Italy, as it were a foot and leg encased in a tight-fitting boot, was juggling deftly with the islands of Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica. Prussia, a formidable hatchet embedded in the heart of Germany, its edge just grazing the frontiers of France, whilst France itself suggested a vigorous torso with Paris at its breast. All at once, Ben Zoof breaks the silence. Montmartre! I see Montmartre! And smile at the absurdity as others might, nothing could induce the worthy orderly to surrender his belief that he could actually make out the features of his beloved home. The only individual whose soul seemed unstirred by the approaching earth was Palmer and Rosette. Leaning over the side of the car, he kept his eyes fixed upon the abandoned comet, now floating about a mile and a half below him, bright in the general irradiation which was flooding the surrounding space. Chronometer in hand, Lieutenant Procope stood marking the minutes and seconds as they fled, and the stillness which had once again fallen upon them all was only broken by his order to replenish the stove, that the Montgolfier might retain its necessary level. Servadac and the Count continued to gaze upon the earth with an eagerness that almost amounted to awe. The balloon was slightly in the rear of Galia, a circumstance that augured somewhat favourably, because it might be presumed that if the comet preceded the balloon in its contact with the earth, there would be a break in the suddenness of transfer from one atmosphere to the other. The next question of anxiety was, where would the balloon alight? If upon terra firma, would it be in a place where adequate resources for safety would be at hand? If upon the ocean, would any passing vessel be within hail to rescue them from their critical position? Truly, as the Count observed to his comrades, none but a divine pilot could steer them now. Forty-two minutes passed, said the lieutenant, and his voice seemed to thrill through the silence of expectation. There were not twenty thousand miles between the comet and the earth. The calculated time of impact was two hours, forty-seven minutes, thirty-five point six seconds. Five minutes more, and collision must ensue. But 
was it so? Just at this moment, Lieutenant Procope observed that the comet deviated sensibly in an oblique course. Was it possible that, after all, collision would not occur? The deviation, however, was not great. It did not justify any anticipation that Galileo would merely graze the earth as it had done before. It left it certain that the two bodies would inevitably impinge. No doubt, said Ben Zoof, this time we shall stick together. Another thought occurred. Was it not only too likely that, in the fusion of the two atmospheres, the balloon itself, in which they were being conveyed, would be rent into ribbons, and every one of its passengers hurled into destruction, so that not a galleon should survive to tell the tale of their strange peregrinations? Moments were precious, but Hector Servadac resolved that he would adopt a device to secure that at least some record of their excursion in solar distances should survive themselves. Tearing a leaf from his notebook, he wrote down the name of the comet, the list of the fragments of the earth it had carried off, the names of his companions, and the date of the comet's aphelion, and, having subscribed it with his signature, turned to Nina, and told her he must have the carrier pigeon which was nestling in her bosom. The child's eyes filled with tears. She did not say a word, but, imprinting a kiss upon its soft plumage, she surrendered it at once, and the message was hurriedly fastened to its neck. The bird wheeled round and round in a few circles that widened in their diameter, and quickly sunk to an altitude in the comet's atmosphere much inferior to the balloon. Some minutes more were thus consumed, and the interval of distance was reduced to less than 8,000 miles. The velocity became inconceivably great, but the increased rate of motion was in no way perceptible. There was nothing to disturb the equilibrium of the car in which they were making their aerial adventure. Forty-six minutes, announced the lieutenant. The glowing expanse of the Earth's disk seemed like a vast funnel, yawning to receive the comet and its atmosphere, balloon and all, into its open mouth. Forty-seven, cried Procope. There was half a minute yet. A thrill ran through every vein. A vibration quivered through the atmosphere. The Mongolfia, elongated to its utmost stretch, was manifestly being sucked into a vortex. Every passenger in the quivering car involuntarily clung spasmodically to its sides, and as the two atmospheres amalgamated, clouds accumulated in heavy masses, involving all around in dense obscurity, while flashes of lurid flame threw a weird glimmer on the scene. In a mystery, everyone found himself upon the earth again. They could not explain it, but here they were once more upon terrestrial soil. In a swoon they had left the earth, and in a similar swoon they had come back. Of the balloon, not a vestige remained, and contrary to previous computation, the comet had merely grazed the earth and was traversing the regions of space again far away. End of chapter 18 of Book 2 Recording by Holly Sheard www.hollysheard.co.uk